Hey everyone, I'm Chris Lindstrom, and this is sort of a sideline to the Food About Town podcast. Um, I was able to attend a meeting at Joe Bean Coffee on February 19th, hosted by the Rochester Coffee Society, and it was with four different area roasters, one from uh, Peaks Coffee, one from Gimme, one from Joe Bean, and one from Public Espresso out of Buffalo. And it was about a two-hour conversation, and... We were able to sample some of their coffees, talk about how things are roasted, and the audience got to answer, get some questions answered about roasting, you know, from baristas. It was sort of an industry talk. So this is something a little bit different, but uh, thanks to uh, Ben Turiano and the Joe Bean crew for letting me record this. And I think you'll be hearing more from the Rochester Coffee Society in the relatively near future. So stay tuned on Food About Town for more coffee-related talk. And I hope you enjoy this roaster conversation. Uh, if you do, share out on uh, Facebook, Food About Town, at Stromy on Twitter and Instagram, and try and find the Rochester Coffee Society on Facebook if you're really into the coffee scene. Thanks for listening. As a quick warning, this was recorded on my Blue Yeti on-site at Joe Bean, so the audio isn't quite the same as you'd expect on a normal podcast. Should be able to hear everything, but you'll hear a little bit more room noise and levels might not be quite as balanced. But I hope you enjoy. Thanks. So uh, I think we can go ahead and uh, kind of kick things off here. Uh, first of all, thank everyone for coming. This is the uh, first time we've done anything like this. And yeah, I think we're all pretty excited about doing this type of uh, gathering, getting people to share knowledge and I think specifically for us today um, trying to share knowledge on something that is I think a bit opaque or abstract for a lot of front of house people so uh, you know it, it's easy for us to understand or maybe not easy but I can say okay I've tasted this varietal a few different ways so I can associate different flavors with this varietal or I've tasted this uh, processing method or I've tasted copies at these different altitudes or these different origins but I think this is a huge unknown for for a lot of people serving coffee saying like well I get that you're pushing buttons and doing stuff and it, it looks hard and I'm sure it affects it but I, I really don't know how so hopefully we can uh, help illuminate some of that and get some cool conversation going uh, kind of how we're gonna work this we've got four different people who are gonna be talking uh, each person's gonna kind of introduce whatever coffee they've brought for us today, uh, kind of talk through how they approached it, uh, you know, what, what kind of went into the roasting process for them. I'm going to brew it up, we're all going to taste it, and then it's uh, just a real informal Q&A kind of uh, session after that. We're going to give about 15-20 minutes per person and just try and find out what went behind the process, uh, you know. What, what's affecting what and try and draw some correlations to what we're tasting in the cup to uh, what they're doing on the machinery there. So uh, do we want to have people who are talking come up here? Or? <laughs> <laughs> I want to see you. Here, have you Well, maybe if you guys want to just briefly introduce who you are and who you're with. I'm Andrew. I'm a production roaster at Gimme Coffee on Ithaca. 
I'm Zach, I assistant roast for Public Espresso. I'm Janine, I'm the head roaster here at Jobine. I'm Eli, I'm the head roaster at Peaks Coffee Company. Very cool. Eli, maybe you want to start, and then I'll <coughs> throw up your stuff, and we can kick into this. Sure. Just going to describe what coffee we got here. Yeah. All right. We actually brought a blend. It is our our winter blend to be released tomorrow. We just kind of finished up creating it. Uh, we've got a Brazilian coffee, a red catuai uh, from Alex Chagas's farm, grown at about 1,100 meters, um, and. We also have an Ethiopian heirloom coffee uh, between 1900 and 2100 meters. Uh, we do 40% of Brazil, 60% Ethiopia. It's got like a really nice, really, really nice complexity. Um, and we didn't really, the interesting thing to me and like how we crafted this blend, we didn't blend it the way some, sometimes it seems to me that it happens with uh, like two subpar coffees that are created or that are blended to kind of create like a better product. We took two exceptional coffees to create a really nice, like even more exceptional coffee. And uh, I really, really like how the blend came together. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> yes? When you're blending, do you do them like both at once, like roast them all, or do you do separate roasts and then mix them? We do uh, entirely post-roast blending. Uh, as a lot of the times coffees, well, all of the time, coffee will have a different uh, like moisture contents and densities and things that all end up affecting the way that it will roast. Um, and so if you blend them before roasting the actual coffee, um, there tends to be more room for inconsistency. Right. So with this blend and all others that we've done, we, we blend them post-roast. Uh, one thing I thought about too, Eli, do you want to talk about what equipment you're working with? I thought that might be nice detail sure. to... Uh, yeah, at the moment we have a 3 kilo U.S. Roaster Core roaster. Um, it is from, what's the year that the roaster's from? Uh, it is a 2015? It's a 2015 U.S. Roaster Core roaster, 3 kilo. Um, that thing gives us some, some trouble sometimes. Uh, we're in the process of upgrading to a 12 kilo Probat uh, L12. Yeah, Probat L12. Um, to, to give folks an idea of how small that is, what's the largest roast we, uh, we put in 4.6 pounds, uh, which is between 70 and 80% of the drum capacity, and we end up putting out about 4 pounds of roasted coffee. <laughs> so. I'm, I'm going to cry real quick. Okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this, this guy right here, I believe, is a 25 kilo roaster, and uh, yeah, that's that's a dream machine compared. We put out what makes about five 12 ounce bags after one roast. What's your production day look like? Depends, but it's pretty much six to two, four or five days a week. Yeah. Uh, and we're doing, I don't know, like 12 to 15 batches a minute. One thing is, I'm a fan of that piece. If we if we have like uh, somebody order more than like 20 pounds, <laughs> yeah, there, there have been 12 plus hour roast days that uh, tire you out, tire the roaster out. Not, I mean, the actual roasting machine, and including the roaster. Uh, yeah, and, and 
we've been we've been lucky enough to really move along with the process of getting our our larger roaster sooner than later. How do you go about the process of securing the greens? Um, the process of securing the greens is more out of my personal field. Uh, Sam, who was just speaking, is uh, the owner and green buyer, and uh, he does a lot of a lot of sourcing. We do. We have coffees from Brazil, Ethiopia. We have really good relationships with people in Colombia. Um, but that's more out of the scope of my personal position. Um, you mentioned as far as like quantity-wise, if someone ordered like 20 pounds of coffee, how do you uh, keep that a consistent roast profile with different roasts going in and blending those coffees? It's um, so like consistent roast of the, of the same coffee to, to fill right. that order. Right. Uh, well, we use roast tracking software, uh, Cropster, that is hooked up to the roaster and plugs right into a computer with a USB cable. It shows us the time and the temperatures and the rate at which the temperatures are rising or falling. Um, and so that actually maps that onto a graph for us with a lot of nice curves. And you can go in and set this roast or that roast as the profile that's used. Um, and that really helps us. We can do the same thing which like with numbers on the roaster again and again, but ambient temperatures and thermal mass of the roaster like from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. will change. So that really helps to show us that what we're doing is actually translating to the same roast of the coffee one time to the next. Do you want to talk at all about uh, like profile creation, how you go about finding, like, what, what's a time temperature curve that you think is appropriate versus one that you feel is inappropriate? Sure. Um, well, with with our particular roaster, uh, we have, through trial and error mostly, uh, found that our roasts tend to be between 10 and 12 minutes with a little bit of variation. You know, you could be a little bit shorter than 10 minutes, a little bit longer than 12 minutes. But just through trial and error, that's what we've decided and tasted uh, actually comes out the best. Um, when we charge a roast into the roaster at a specific temperature, we'll have a general idea, like based on the the density of the coffee that we'll, we'll get that information from the importer, the moisture content of the coffee, the variety of the coffee. You can get a general idea from those, but if you're dropping it in at 400 degrees or 420 degrees, um, that kind of, in our process anyway, has, uh, like you can't really get an exact number just by the information about the coffee. We kind of go through trial and error. We'll create a profile, taste it, and if we taste that the coffee has like a dryness or if the coffee has like a muted acidity, we might try to accentuate <coughs> one part of the roast. Uh, like try to try to have a delta lower um, at the beginning of the roast or have it roast a little bit longer. Um, but that's mostly roast it, taste it, change the roast. How long do you like wait to taste it? Uh, like from, from end of roast to, to cupping it. Um, we will pretty much wait a minimum of 18 hours uh, to let the coffee like sufficiently degas and, and age a little bit so that we actually are getting the profile that the coffee will present itself with for the rest of its, you know, two, two week to a month life. Uh, if you go before that, um, every, all the flavors won't really have had time to develop and a lot of the, the CO2 is going to uh, mess with stuff. So we wait a minimum of 18 hours. And then 
like let's say you have like an Ethiopian, like oh I want to make this like sweeter, or I want to get a little bit of this note, and then want to like accentuate it. Like what are the variables that like play into that? Um, so different periods of the roast, um, like from from minute zero to five, ish. Again, like that'll that'll change roast to roast. Um, is spent in kind of like drying the coffee house, removing a lot of the moisture. And then you have a period of uh, like caramelization in the roast where a lot of the sugars are gonna be um, actually caramelizing. And then you have a lot of chemical reactions that are happening and, and, and things that are reacting with new elements that are kind of like being developed um, in the last few minutes of the roast, especially after the coffee actually cracks. Um, and. and so if we want it to be a little bit sweeter, we might try to have it spend more time in caramelization. Um, if we want it to be uh, a little bit more roasty, uh, we would obviously take the, the degree a little bit higher. Um, and yeah, yeah. So we should be just about good to go on these guys. Yes. Wanna Oh, sorry. Sorry, we got one more question. Yeah. yeah. Uh, would you say that you have a specific roast style? Um, and if you do, like, what is your reason behind that as a mm. philosophy for roasting? I don't know if I would be able to put a specific name to like our style of roasting. Um, I think that for you take into account like all of the, the roast times uh, across the board from different styles of actual coffee, we would probably roast relatively quick um, as far as like minute nine to ten like nine to twelve minutes like I said um, we roast relatively quick we do end up roasting lighter in degree but it really brings out nice sweetness and crispness to the coffee um, names have been thrown around I think like Nordic style roasting uh, that might be closer to what most of our coffees end up being classified under um, yeah, but as far as like an actual label to it, I don't know sure. that I'd be able to put one. Sure. Cool. Do you want to walk us through what uh, you should be expecting with this here? Sure. So this coffee, like I said, we have two two coffees that are more than uh, acceptable in our fire standards <laughs> to be served at, as single origins, and we've combined them, and they bring like a really, really nice balance. Uh, while at the same time a really, really nice complexity. You'll get like sometimes kind of pomegranate <coughs> wine, uh, like a little bit of like pomegranate wininess, and you'll get a lot of sweetness, a really nice, uh, a really nice punchy acidity at the same time. But overall, just like a really, really nice balance to the cup. So we actually offer, we offer both of these coffees as single origin coffees. And uh, 
I think that Sam actually jump-started the, the process of blending these particular coffees. Of course. But they, the, the Brazil itself has like a really, really kind of nostalgic heaviness to it. It has a really nice sweetness. Um, and the Ethiopian coffee has a very, like a poppy brightness and a, and a really complex floral profile to it. And they just, again, I think that he jump-started the, the actual process of it, he put them together, but um, they really just meld together really, really nicely. Like they, they bring it sort of. Yeah, it's like mentality. all of the complexity. So I get like a lot of sweetness, um, especially like when it's, when it's hotter, but you can taste like a lot of sweetness. And a little bit of that whininess, like the, the full natural Brazil has like just that hint of um, like pleasant, I don't want to say ferment as if it's like a bad thing, but like that pleasant fermentiness that uh, kind of whiny. So you said the Brazil is full natural? The Brazil is a full natural. And what about yes. Ethiopia? Ethiopia is fully washed. So again, kind of those opposites, like really bringing a, a full profile to the coffee. Does everyone got coffee? If anyone has any comments about the coffee, just go for it. What is the optimal way that should be prepared? Uh, so this coffee kind of so far has, has worked very well just about any way that we brew it. As espresso, it is exceptional. It is just, again, all of the complexity, I mean, I, I know that I've been saying that like a lot about this coffee, but all of the complexity just is, nothing's really hidden. It's really nice and like, not heavy, but it feels really nice on your palate and it, it has nice brightness through the, the cup, really, really nice sweetness. Um, and when it's prepared, prepared as espresso, I think that's probably my personal favorite preparation that we've, uh, we've done of it so far. Sometimes to take a coffee from sink, like from just kind of a drip profile to espresso, the development of the coffee, meaning like post first crack, the amount of time and or the temperature that we that we take it will be changed, taken a little bit further. Um, we've done that in the past with these uh, specific coffees. They're roasted the same exact way for uh, for drip as they are for for this blend that we've prepared as espresso. It just, it really ends very well. I don't think any changes is necessary. Yes? Thank you. 
Yeah, well, so we've, we've had, we have a blend um, that we have served as espresso, like our house espresso blend, we call it Mountain Climber, and we, we do a lot of wholesale of that coffee, and we will recommend um, an espresso, like, kind of recipe for that, like, put such and such in at such and such time, and, uh, and that's what we like it as. Um, we wouldn't probably ever say, don't brew this in a Chemex, but if a coffee is, is roasted to be an espresso blend, um, that will be kind of like the, the guideline. Like this is, a, this is an espresso intended coffee. Um, we personally just, with our, our palates, we prefer it either, one coffee or another, we would probably prefer it either in a Chemex or as espresso, but um, I have not really come across a coffee that's like, that we've roasted, I mean, that's, uh, you know, don't brew it in this in this method. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't think that we would ever like to say don't brew it this way. Do you taste? Um, so you said just Chemex and espresso. Do you use any other? Chemex espresso, V uh, sixty. We use those three in our shops, but our, some of our wholesale clients will do uh, Kalito Wave and Aeropress and French press. Um, yeah, and so so when we're roasting before we we get the coffee out to them before we release it, we will taste it in some of those other those other brewing methods and if it isn't tasting good um, we will likely try to change the coffee a little bit or, or change the recipe of how we brew it um, until it's, it's either acceptable or exceptional and then we will pass that information along to our wholesale clients. Out of curiosity, uh, what, what's your like process when you're determining from a roasting perspective if something is exceptional or acceptable or unacceptable? Like, what's your what's your QC program like? And well, we we taste all of our all of our coffees, and it ends up being just about all of the roasts um, in cupping fashion. Again, 18 hours, give or take an hour after the roast so we'll, we'll roast it one day and then the next day we'll come in in the morning while the roaster's warming up and cup all of those coffees and if there is an unpleasantness in the coffee that's pretty much unacceptable we don't we don't have a lot of coffees that are defect ridden um, we wouldn't be tasting something that's like oh that's not that's not what we love and then be able to blame it on the coffee uh, so if we're tasting like this is really flat or it's the, the city's not popping the way that we want it to um, that's a thing that we can change by uh, adjusting the curve one way or another in the roast. Um, is it like a pretty informal kind of notes thing you're doing, or do you do like a yeah, we don't, standardized? Kind of we don't end up cupping like with a, with a SCAA form or anything with all of our production samples. If for no other reason than since it's not that size machine, there are a lot of sure. a lot of roasts that we have to cup through. There have been times when the table. This size is just full, like cup to cup, with roasts from the previous day or two days. So um, it's all pass fail, basically. So basically, it's pass fail. We'll we'll cup for half an hour or more. Um, we'll so go from breaking the crust and everything's very hot to everything's room temperature or colder, and the whole the whole time for half an hour, forty five minutes. If we taste uh, a really like a, a muddied feel to it, or if we taste a flat acidity or lack of sweetness. Um, that entire time, then it's 
not fail, like we're not gonna throw the coffee out if it doesn't taste perfect. Sure. But we know to change something and sure. and it's it's not exceptional at that point. So yeah, we, it's basically, it's kind of informal. We don't end up filling out forms yeah. for those 45 coffees. Yes. Um, when you do taste that unpleasantness or muddiness, um, how, on average, how many times do you uh, roast a coffee, like test roast a coffee to make it where you want to? To profile the coffee. When we first get a coffee in, um, like I was saying earlier, we have a general idea, uh, charge it into the roaster at, at such and such temperature because of the, the density and the moisture content and the variety and all that. Um, and there's still a lot of blindness going in, so we do end up um, probably not wasting, but profiling one that ends up not being perfect. And then we'll roast another profile that we change the things that we need to change in it. And either that one or the next roast will be uh, good. So two or three. So roasts. yeah, two or three uh, roasts to profile the coffee normally. Well, I think we have time for one more question. Sure. If there's anything, anything else about the coffee, do we? What do we think about the coffee? <laughs> <laughs> it's just a. <laughs> well, that's exactly what we were going for. <laughs> It's the beans that I got in for the, the Coffee Champs competition in Austin that we just got back from. Um, and it's not the most exceptional bean that we have on the shelf, 
but it's the bean that I learned the most from, because um, I just ran this into the ground to find like the perfect rose for it. So um, yeah, so from the Central Highlands, uh, it's very volcanic soil. Um, it's grown at 1,900 meters, um, and Kenyan soil is known for like this high phosphorus content, right? So mineral rich, uh, high altitude, lovely beans. It's SL34 and SL28 varietals, so they're known for that um, sparkling citrus, that big sweetness, and like a whole milk mouthfeel, right? So that's what I was looking for um, when I started roasting this guy. Yeah, so I guess um, the first thing that I did when I got this one in was to run just a straight shot up to my end temp, just a one over one rise. Um, I didn't want to take any artistic liberties with it because I just wanted to sort of get a feel for what was possible. Um, and that's generally how I approach most beans that come in. Um, I want to see when they crack. Um, I want to see how they react to energy application. So this one cracked late and really lagged when I tried to apply some energy to it. So I know that it's dense, it's a dense bean. Um, so you have to be careful with those dense beans to fully develop the internal structure of the bean before you get to first crack. Otherwise you're left with uh, papery, nasty, underdeveloped notes. Um, you know, it's lacking in the cup. A customer will get a cup like that and think, oh, this could have been great, but something's really missing here. And it's because those molecules weren't broken down. Um, like the bean hasn't reached its full potential. So. I took that, uh, that initial, just one over one rise to the cupping table, um, and I got really interesting uh, acidity, potential acidity, um, something like a cherry cola, some, some bright lime zest, some like really neat stuff, but I also got like compost, uh, too much sweet with too much savory. Um, I got weed, straight up dank. Um, <laughs> I, got, <laughs> I got paper, um, and I didn't know it at the time, but this bean is a year and a half old. Whoa. Yeah, it's old. Um, so that's fade, you know, and there's nothing we can do about that as roasters. We really have to work around that. We have to try to bring out enough greatness that it can, like, kind of cover that up. Um, so then I sorted this bean by hand. We did about 20 different profile roasts for this. I did about 25, 20 different profile roasts for this bean. Um, each profile roast was about two pounds, so that's hand sorting out quite a bit of beans um, and it made a huge difference like it was worth all that time uh, I wish I could do it for every bag that's on our shelves because it really like made a huge huge difference I pulled out um, about a third of every batch in defects so that's bugs right that's uh, mechanical slices uh, that's uh, ripeness variants right beans were different colors um, I got mold, like the works. Anything that could go wrong with this bean was wrong with this bean. Um, but what was left behind was really exciting. Oh, I also pulled out uh, different sizes, right? Because what I'm aiming for is a uh, bean that I can keep consistent, right? Like I want something that I can count on, that I can have scientific experiments on basically, um, that will react in, in ways that I can track. And if I am applying energy to a slightly smaller bean, right, it's, alongside a medium-sized bean, that smaller bean is going to give me an over-roasted flavor, right? Same with the larger bean, but in the other way, it's going to taste underdeveloped, whereas that, that median is perfectly developed. So you want something you can count on. So I pulled out any outliers. Um, and, and then I basically took it to the sandbox. Um, I was working, so this is big and that small. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, but what that actually means for roasting is that 
uh, everything changes, and not in a linear way, not in like a, a formulaic way, uh, in an unpredictable way where you have to mess it up in order to learn like how it's going to change, right? So in this guy, I actually want an eight-minute roast, where in that guy, I want 13, almost 14 minutes sometimes roast. Um, but when I tried to roast a 13-minute roast on this little guy, everything was charcoal, and it was disgusting. So I had to back it down. Um, and I did that by making ratios within my roast profile. So um, like we just heard, there are different portions in your roast that are related to different flavors that you can bring out, right? So the first chunk that I thought about was that drying enzymatic phase. So like up until yellowing, up until 300 degrees or so. Um, and then the next portion, next ratio I figured out was that uh, 300, 330 up until 350 or whenever I needed to prepare for first crack, right? And then from first crack to the end was the last chunk. Um, so the, the successful one here, six minutes until yellowing. That's a huge portion of the roast, right? Um, and then from there, I really, I, I bumped up my energy application a little bit because I wanted to add some energy in that would help with those Maillard processes that were happening. So Maillard processes are what happen when you sear a steak when things turn brown, when things with sugar and protein turn brown, right? And they're really delicious, like umami flavors. Um, but it requires energy for those amino acids to bond and cleave with those reducing sugars. So I freed up a little bit of that energy um, to sort of kickstart that off. And then when I got to 350 degrees, I freed up even a little bit more because with Kenyan roasts, um, I like to end my roast with a decreasing rate of rise. So rate of rise is, how much temperature you're gaining over how much time, right? Um, and the only way that we can control that is with a, f a flame, right? With energy application. Um, so basically what that translates to in, a, in this Kenyan roast is I want to back off my flame at the end of the roast while still increasing the slope of my roast, right? I want to gain degrees and lose heat. It's a, it's a fine dance to play, right? Um, because you don't want to have any plateaus at the end that can lead to bakey flavors, and you don't want to have to all of a sudden pour on a bunch of heat that can tip or scorch or give you blowouts of your coffee that are going to taste burnt. Um, so right before first crack is my last chance to gain that momentum I need to ride to the end. So 350 degrees, I started to think about that. 380 degrees, I hit that first crack. Um, and then, like I said, gently backed off the heat to the end there. Um, I presented this in a really disorganized fashion, so please ask all the questions you want. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> and what you should end with here is, is a cup that is mostly pleasant. Um, <laughs> I get nice malic acidity, so that's like apple juicy notes. I get citric acidity, so that lemon, lime zest. Um, I get that phosphoric, like zingy thing that Kenyans are so popular for, like that uh, tamarind cherry cola. I also get big sweetness, um, so clover honey, um, toffee, treacle, um, and it finishes quite floral. Uh, and if you let it cool, I think when it's just about body temperature, it really shines. Um, yeah, most of the coffees that we get in here, I'm really lucky. Ben, ben brings me lovely presents of really nice beans. Um, and so my job is basically to see what they can be and then get out of the way. Um, with this bean, there was just a whole lot of getting out of the way. Um, <laughs> and, and so you're going to get that paper. You're going to get that, like, it's an old coffee, but I hope that, like, the pleasant 
aspects of the coffee kind of help cover that a little bit. I guess we try to get current season crops. Okay. Um, so this would have been last year's current season crop. To continue on that, about how long do you like do your greens last? It really depends on how much people like them, um, which is like uh, probably the same for you guys, right? Um, so we're trying to order in quarters. Yes. Well, we're kind of split the year. This is more of him. So four months is. That, that's our target, um, and I, I'd say we're typically reasonably close to that with some stuff lasting more like five, six months, but four is, that's ideal world. And so, on the age thing, when did you find out that you were Oh, at the competition! <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> did you see very surprised by it? I was really surprised, Murray. So, like, they sent me this. This is my information on the bean. Um, <laughs> and it says harvest crop year 2016. So, I thought that's pretty good, right? Because, like, you know, but no. Um, so, like, I was dealing with this, like, really unpleasant. I thought the bean was underdeveloped again and again and again, even at 13 minutes in this tiny machine. I thought, like, what, you know, what the heck? But uh, they were, I got docked off a lot of points for not mentioning that this bean was old. And I didn't know, I was like, oh, right, yeah, this is definitely old. Um, it was cool. So because it's so new, they didn't really have all of the details sort of ironed out. So we didn't know until we got there, would we be mic'd? That's like my worst fear. Um, would there be a stage? Another terrible fear. Um, like how many people, what, what's going on at all? Um, do we have music or props or any of those things? But then we arrived, and what it was was three different little tables in a taped off zone, and then uh, we used the Bonavita 8 cup brewer. They brew your coffee for you. They cup it, and they brew it immediately after that, and they come right on out, and there's like judges standing around your table, and you're like talking with them just like normal people, which is great, about your coffee. Um, they taste your coffee, uh, and then you step out of the ring, and the next person goes. So a round of three goes, and then you all step back in, and it's open to the crowd for half an hour, and you just talk to people about your coffee, and where you're from, and what you do, and that was my favorite part, because you got to talk to different people about how they did their roast, and everybody did it like bonkers different, um, which opened up new variables. It's like being an artist and you think like you've got, you know, all of these colors to play with, and now I've got like all of these other colors I didn't even know existed, right? Um, so this roast, actually, I used some new variables. I thought the lowest I should probably go for an end temperature is probably 403, right? This is 409, er, 393 degrees. This is way low. And the guy who won it in Knoxville did 385 degrees was his end temp. So that just blew my mind, right? More things are possible than I thought. Anyway, so a bunch of different variables like that that I, I just um, sort of assumed were off limits, like things that we just don't do, were done and were awesome. So, 
So that, that's like a that. like a lower and slower method. So you're just trying to no, not at trying all. to keep the temperature low, or no. you're just kind of zipping through it, but with a. Well, what he did was wild, right? So he did an eight-minute roast. Twenty-five percent of that was post-first crack time, so development time. So, what two whole minutes? That's a lot. Um, so what he had to do, normally first crack happens around 380 degrees, unless something weird happens, right? And then it happens early. He poured as much energy into those beans as possible. So he charged, his charge temp was really low, and then he just poured the energy on so it cracked a little early. And then he could ride that out low and slow for two minutes. Wow. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's basically, if you think about it as a graph, it's like this. Wow. Yeah, so, I mean, this was my initial profile that I told you guys about. Um, but I slowed down a little bit more at the end and then ended a little bit lower. And I find that the difference between this one and the one that I brought to the competition was that the acidity in this one pops more. Um, it's way cleaner, you know? Yay! <laughs> How do you go through sorting your beans? And I'm assuming you could sort of answer my other question, which is does lowering the end tent or lengthening that time create a higher acidity or different type of acidity. So this is something that I'm going to play with now. Now I know in this bean, um, if I lower my end temp, so that post first crack time is when I start to mellow out the acidity that happens in Kenyan coffees in that first crack, right? Uh, if I extend that post first crack time, then it just mellows a little bit too much for me. If it's a little bit lower, I have less time there and it's a little brighter with all of that sweetness that developed during the sugar browning phase. Um, was that your second question? Did I yeah, get that right? Okay, cool. The first one was, it's really low tech, right? So I've got a compost bin, I've got a scoop that's full of unsorted beans, and then I've got a, like a food safe Ziploc baggie. Uh, and I take a, a little handful and I look at every single bean and the bad ones go on the compost and the good ones go on the Ziploc baggie. <laughs> Yeah, it's a lot of hand washing too. Yeah. <laughs> so, Eli, yes, uh, you said something about uh, getting the density of the bean from where you source them, but you sounded like you said the way you worded it that you didn't know it. You found it out on your own. Is that across the board that you usually would get those types of variables from? Supplier or that that depends. You do from from some people. You don't from some people. In my experience, uh, we have a uh, we have a guy in Colombia who is we have a greater amount of contact with, um, and we have been kind of like asking for more and more information about the coffee, whether it's um, moisture contents or or whatever. Um, it's not necessarily something that you'll always get, as she was saying. Um, but it's something that would help to know exactly. <laughs> in, in my experience, most uh, importers don't give you. Okay. That's like a, you get really excited. That's I would not say. Okay. How do you do like the like gin coffees and the barrel aged coffees? How's that process work? Yeah, um, it's really fascinating. Um, so we. Age our coffee in a barrel when it's green. Oh, when it's green? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Uh, 
and then we roast it after that. So, but we we do a couple experiments to see what the prime aging time is, right? So I don't want it to taste only of booze. It can also get really vegetal if it's left in that for a long time. Um, so yeah, we we do a couple different experiments where we run it for like say 10 hours, 12 hours, 14, 16 hours and see kind of where the golden zone is there. Then we roast it up. Um, yeah, and it's, it's the last one we did that we have running right now is that Nicaraguan. Um, from Gold Mountain Farms, and I started with a bourbon barrel on that one, and it was not tasty at all, which is strange because I love bourbon. Um, so the gin barrel actually changed the profile of that bean a whole lot, and it was really special and pleasant. Like, it, it reminded me of Christmas, you know? It was, like, piney and delicious. Yeah. So mostly experimentation. It's something that we just started dabbling in um, when Wade was our head roaster, so two years ago? You started with that Zimbabwe, right? So we're pretty new to this. Um, yeah. And how does that like affect like moisture content and all that? Like having it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, Favorite answer. <laughs> there are moisture meters. We don't own one. Yes. So. <laughs> Currently, that is a variable that we do not track. We're, we're using pretty short contact time. I know some other roasters will do uh, like, a, like a month in barrel with the express purpose of manipulating moisture content. Um, but we're, we're typically talking 12 hours is kind of like a normal and then plus or minus a few hours, but it's, it's relatively quick. Yeah, and how do you choose a coffee to do that with? Like, do you like roast it beforehand and say like this flavor profile will work good at this barrel age, or do you just sort of go by like origin? Um, it, honestly, it's it's usually based on kind of what we have in house and kind of looking at what we have a little bit more of and could kind of spare some of that for a program like that. Um, if we have a smaller supply of coffee, uh, that can kind of cannibalize some of it. Sure. Um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't say that there's a Massively systematic way. <laughs> we have time for one more question. Since that's kind of a new process, it seems, um, have you found that there's differences in the beans when you have different amounts in the barrel? Yeah, yeah, I, I have. So when <coughs> I'm profiling the first run of a potential barrel aged bean, I only do a little bit because what if it's bad? Um, and I don't want to waste all of those beans, right? And they are boozy. Um, and so you kind of have to trust that like, when the barrel is full, it will be a little bit muted. Um, but it's still, like how much muted is kind of, kind of a mystery until you do a whole barrel. And piggybacking on that, are you just letting them rest in the barrel or are you rotating them? I am just letting them rest in the barrel. I know that Wade ran a bunch of experiments with like, stave aging in a mason jar. We were to shake the jar every time we walked past it. Um, so. <laughs> I mean, right now what we're doing is we just let them sit full in contact with the sides of the barrel. I know different people are using like different systems to hold the beans in the barrel. Um, some people don't let them touch the sides of the barrel, but we find that it works out just fine if you do. Um, yeah, so just sit overnight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well.
So we should probably call Lockhouse when we get home. I actually have uh, I have some barrels from Tom Rock. Even better. What kind of barrels? Uh, gin. Yeah, I love gin aging. It's amazing. He's never tried it. Yeah, yeah. We literally posted on Facebook, hey, I've got one. Oh, that's awesome. I'll take one. I would love to experiment. Good? I'm good. You don't have to. I think that uh, try the Papua New Guinea. Yeah, you don't have that much left. As much as you guys think. It's a whole other experience. And as we were talking about that, was this. Didn't we start with like three bags though? There's a lot. That's true. And Ethiopia. It's not super tasty. It's more just the rice. That would be really good. You said there's small to express their notation to be. I love that so much. He's doing one of each. Okay, cool. Alright, so we kind of broke the rules and brought two coffees. Um, they're both from the same uh, farm, just two different lots. And one's a natural process, one's uh, washed. So it's kind of a nice little tool to highlight the characteristics of how processing affects the coffee. <laughs> um, so yeah, they're uh, both Brazilians um, from Fazenda Primavera, um, grown by a producer named Ricardo Tavares, um, and we actually didn't source these. They came to us by way of Ally Coffee, um, and they were just kind of reaching out to us, see if we wanted to buy some coffees, send us some samples, and we ended up buying the first ones. Um, we only got a little bit of each one. It's going to be a kind of fancy tasting series. Um, yeah, so roasting these beans is actually the first Brazil that I've ever roasted, weirdly. Um, it's the first Brazil public has ever roasted. First Brazil, first Brazil public has ever roasted. and. Uh, didn't really know how to approach it actually. They're a little bit um, low grown. They're actually only about a thousand meters above sea level. Um, so they're not super dense beans. Not actually the prettiest looking beans either. Um, they're kind of a little bit jagged, little tiny guys. Um, so it's kind of a little bit nervous about approaching it um, in like the way that we would approach any other South American coffee. Um, and so that definitely showed in the sample roasts. We, we roast on little, um, just little half pound machines. Um, and we do a lot of just kind of by sense, by smell, taste, all that stuff. Um, and so found that this bean gets really, really dark, really fast. Um, like trying to take it anywhere past, you know, minute past first crack is gonna be charcoal almost. Um, and then it also does not develop super fast. So when we're taking it to like right at first crack also, it's very um, thin, very vegetal, um, especially the washed coffee. The natural kind of gets away with having a little more fruit flavor in there, but the washed coffee um, is, is a little bit finicky, hard to work with. Um, But yeah, so in the um, in the coffees, the natural kind of has a lot of uh, um, red fruit, um, and it's a little bit a um, little more on the back end. Not too much acidity, a little bit of a heavier body, and uh, the washed is um, 
excuse me. Wash is kind of like a Reese's Pieces. Um, it's a lot of chocolate, um, really nice body, and they both kind of finish a little bit sweet. Um, but yeah, that's those are the two. I'm not sure if everyone's going to get to taste both next to each other. Or, I, I think we can get both. Sweet. Yeah, yeah it'll be cool to compare. Mm -hmm. What, what's the, uh, the equipment you guys are working on right now? You said you're doing small batches? Yeah, so we do these. Uh, these were all on, actually, Gene Cafes. Um, just small little guys. It's very um, trial and error, touch and go. Um, we'll do, like, right when we get the, uh, the new beans in, just a ton of sample roasts and cup them. We usually wait about, try to wait, like, 18 to 24 hours after roast to, uh, to cup them to get those... Uh, nice developed flavors in there, but um, it's very much uh, watching the bean, watching the yellowing and browning and kind of um, listening for first crack, which is like the most basic way to roast, but it really, uh, it's a, it allows you to kind of influence um, on the go, I think, and it's a little bit unique. You mentioned that these were unsolicited samples. What, mm -hmm. per, what percentage of unsolicited samples would you say actually yield a coffee that you would purchase? Um, <laughs> these are the first, so I would say <laughs> nearly zero. Yeah. We, I mean, we, we order a lot of samples, and we probably buy 10% or less of yeah. the samples. And you know, sometimes stuff looks fantastic, and <laughs> either in the amount of coffee that we get, we can't make magic out of it. Um, so sometimes you just you just don't get it, or oftentimes we get a small amount and we'll test row something and we'll see some we'll see potential. Uh, we typically buy on potential, um, and then we'll do ten more test rows when it comes and hope that we can find something that's great. Yeah, and I go a little bit crazy with the sample road, or the uh, sample ordering, um, as James can attest. Uh, yeah. There's usually quite a few arriving every week, so yeah. it's there's definitely a very small percentage of the coffees that we actually taste that we end up buying. It was a little bit of a tough choice to actually decide which coffee to bring this time, though we do have a lot on hand. We only have like, I think four in the shop right now, but uh, um, this is, it came down between this and like a, a new Costa Rica that we got, which also, um, that was actually a, another one that I just, uh, sorry, I lost the train of thought there, um, was reaching out to Olam, just asking them for anything that they could, they could send over. And so they sent this Costa Rica that, um, super, super bright, super, uh, super nice, but this ended up winning just because of the the kind of variation that you can get from the two rows, or the two uh, processing, sorry. Dave, um, <coughs> how does density affect how you go about roasting the density of the coffee? And then on the same sort of note, what are the challenges that you experience with natural coffee versus washed coffee? So the density definitely lets us know kind of how much heat and energy the bean can take. Um, uh, a kind of lower density bean like this is going to roast faster. Um, it's going to really reach first crack pretty fast. Whereas something like a uh, um, strictly hard bean like Costa Rica is going to really require a lot of uh, work into it. Um, so that's kind of just like the baseline for knowing 
where you what kind of want to drop the coffee and um it's really a lot of guesswork beyond that though and then also i'm sorry i actually forgot the second part of the question um, what are the challenges <laughs> between natural and process? so they're really, when I'm approaching at least these, there wasn't too much of a difference in the actual, um, the sample roasting process between the natural and the washed. Um, it was kind of seeing um, where the where the coffees ended up after the roast and then seeing what we could accentuate or uh, like bring out more sweetness in the, in the natural versus kind of those uh, chocolatey tones in the washed. So it's kind of just a, um, again, like a little just guesswork and kind of, adjusting from there on out after after cupping them. Yeah, I, I think one of the challenges for the for the group, particularly when we were cupping these coffees, was because it's the first time we've ever bought the same coffee in two processes, we were we also didn't want to be so different in the roast that you couldn't actually compare the two, right? So the the best for one of them might have been to take it a little bit darker, but then it would have been actually impossible to to taste the two and, and be able to discern the difference. So I think for me, the natural is kind of like right where it needs to be and the washed is in like a good spot to compare it to the natural, but it might not be where the best place for that coffee is. So it'll be interesting to get your feedback on that. The wash probably This is, this is test roast number three. Yeah, this, this is yeah. very, Pre, uh, this hasn't dropped in the shop or anything yet, so it's in the early stages still. Um, but I think the wash probably could go a little bit longer, a little bit darker, maybe take a little more heat. But uh, it, like I said, we're trying to, or like James said, we're trying to really kind of highlight those characteristics between wash and natural. Um, just so everyone knows, we're passing out and out and out the, out the, the wash one right now. And we may eventually have a pulps natural as well. LA, I guess they had a, uh, a later harvest of the pulp natural coffee, but they ended up, um, we actually had the rep come by our shop uh, two weeks ago now and uh, kind of uh, just talk about this coffee. And so they did five different processes with it um, and then picked the best of those. So the pulp natural will be coming in in the next uh, next shipment. So be another tasting note. Uh, flavor profile for the washed and the natural. Yeah, so the washed, we're looking for like Reese's Pieces, um, just kind of those nice chocolatey undertones. Um, and it kind of has a little bit of a um, almost uh, woodiness to it. Um, not an unpleasant woodiness, but uh, just kind of notes underneath everything else. What kind then, of, sorry? Like, is there any like, any like cedar or is it kind of like just a general? It's kind of almost like a, a, a oakiness, um, I would say. Um, and then the, the natural is, it's still got a little bit of a chocolate um, kind of undertones in there, but there's a, it's got a nice brightness at the end, um, nice, nice body, but it also has uh, like red fruit notes um, and just a tiny little bit of uh, blueberry, or at least that's what I found in it. Do you remember what the roast times were on either one? I saw they were written on the back, but I um, The... Washed is the wash is 13, yep. around 13 minutes. Um, the natural goes just a little bit longer, actually, around 13 and a half. Um, yeah, so they do. They are very, very similar in the in the roast. Different farms. Same farm. Yep. Fazenda Primavera. Cool. Yep. Just two different lots.
And so, Zach, I think you're the first person that actually named like an importer mm -hmm. uh, and asking for samples and talking about that. Yeah. Um, so that's something that baristas don't really hear about very often. So mm -hmm. how does that work? Do you, do you call them, ask them, email them? Um, it's really either or. There's a lot of uh, a lot of it's online. A lot of it's uh, you can call, um, talk to a representative. Uh, a lot of emailing back and forth. Once you start to kind of develop relationships with the uh, relationships with the uh, importers, um, and then recently we've been having um, the uh, representatives come by our shop and kind of like sitting down with uh, James and head the uh, head barista Clinton and I, and kind of just talking about like. Uh, what we're looking for in a coffee, um, what our kind of specific uh, tastes are, and uh, what, what the vision of the shop is. So um, it's definitely a kind of a relationship thing for sure. Um, and um, you can also, I mean, they all have a spot coffee list of like what they have in, on hand in different warehouses, but you can also like email someone from Olam and say, hey, I'm looking for a coffee that kind of fits this description. Can you send me any samples that you might have? So it's a, it's a mixed bag. Yeah. I'm only a consumer. I don't know. Mm -hmm. This may sound like a stupid question. What do you mean by washed? So washed is where the uh, immediately after picking, the cherry is going to be just stripped off the seed, and then it will be dried. Um, I mean, there's there's so many different variations, um, but it'll be dried just as the seed, whereas the natural is dried in the actual fruit. So it kind of absorbs a little more sugar. Has uh, um, more fruity tones just from that being surrounded by the mucilage and everything. This is the natural, yeah? This is the natural one. This is the sweet spot. And then So I mean, uh, public maintains a consistent espresso blend. Mm -hmm. uh, revolution. What's the challenges in maintaining a espresso blend over time as you get different samples in? How does that? How do you change your variables? Um, there's kind of a general taste of what we're looking for. It's called the revolution blend. What um, we're looking for the revolution to taste like. Um, and then kind of taking into account just the, um, what each coffee can kind of add to it. Like right now um, we have a Ethiopia kind of um, bring out some fruitier notes, some cherry and things in the coffee, but then also there's a Brazil to have like a, a nice chocolate undertone. Um, so you can kind of look for coffees that just kind of fit that basic same description. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, um, just kind of try and match it up. It's a lot of guesswork, again, a lot of uh, trial and error, but basically just looking at different regions and kind of the flavor profiles that those regions provide. Yeah. Uh, 
with other origins? Is there like certain things you know you're looking for with them? Or definitely, yeah. Um, like within a, a Kenya, kind of looking for those. Um, depending on, of course, the the processing as well, the wash or the um, natural. Um, kind of looking for some nice citrus fruit. Um, a little bit of maybe like black tea or something like that. Um, whereas with uh, you know, like a Costa Rica, a washed Costa Rica, we're looking for more of some nutty tones and things like that. So it's kind of just a, um, again, kind of going with the flavor profiles that the region is kind of known for, um, and then seeing where that coffee kind of lands on that spectrum, um, and any other kind of unexpected notes that might come out of it, um, and then trying to kind of accentuate those. Um, but yeah, knowing that the the Brazil was such a low-grown coffee was um, interesting to start with, just because it was such a unusual thing, a, um, a new thing. So, yeah. Is density one of the bigger things you look for when you're mostly? Yeah, like um, yeah. The density, the processing, and origin are really the big three, the kind of trifecta that at least we're paying attention to for for these roasts. So we actually roasted them, just uh, sample roasted them all, or well, both of them, and then ended up cupping them next to each other. Um, we almost developed them as two completely different coffees. It wasn't um, like roasting one, kind of finding the base notes, and then trying to match the other. It was a... Uh, um, like a, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, I, I think when we, we, we cupped the natural and thought it was a pretty exceptional coffee. Yeah, definitely. And I think we had never, we had actually never gotten a sample before that was two processes. So I, I think the, the, the difference for us was really striking on the on the cupping table, which is what made us kind of pursue buying both. I think had we done it in a traditional way, or blind done it, we would have bought the natural or and not the wash at all. Um, but being able, I mean, we we bought sixty pounds each, right? So this was not this was not a risk of of any kind of right. We didn't buy thousands and thousands of pounds. So if we were doing something for the shop that we wanted to last four months, we would have probably bought that natural and bought enough to last for four months. But for us, we were buying enough to make 40 box sets. And that's, you know, we will probably serve it in the shop like one day and that's it. So. Um, well, this, the, the wash design, um, Oh my gosh. I enjoyed that a lot and more so than the natural. I and mean, I could just obviously think of some of the things, but um, that's why I asked because I think that the natural one seems like roasted a little further than what I would. I actually think, so. yeah, I think this test roast actually came out a little mm -hmm. roastier than. It did, last. yeah. It yeah, was for sure. really a little bit different than on the cupping table. Yeah. So, yeah.
When will the box set be moved? That's actually a great question. I don't have an answer to it. We've got to design some boxes first. Yeah. So, that's, that's a big part of so, it. Sometime, so. sometime in the next 30 days. Oh, wow. It's quite the window. This might be a question for like all of you guys. Um, when you're green buying, how much of your purchasing decision is impacted based on like the farm and like what kind of really cool things they're doing with their people in their community versus the coffee itself? I mean, I think that might not even be a question for the roasters. Yeah, that's not in my wheelhouse. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. Well. That's the first volume two. Of <laughs> we're, we're actually going to try to the next kind of panel we're going to be more of a green buyer I just wasn't sure like if you guys like had any sort of yeah we're all going to go to Columbia yeah all you have to do is RSVP I mean I know that like, like working like where I work and having an influence on some of the green buying like I definitely like look into some of that stuff like all of this farms like owned by a lot of women and they're doing really cool things and i wasn't sure if you guys pay attention to things like that at all yeah i mean if i get those stories i'm really like secretly rooting for that coffee yeah to right, shine on right, the coffee exactly. right like, I, I want i want it to so badly and then you have to forget all about that yeah on the cupping table because i'm not doing anybody any favors no. by serving you know an unpleasant coffee from a terrific origin right I'm not even doing them a favor but like that's not my wheelhouse. Um, so how do you, like, to piggyback on that question, um, which I think is a phenomenal uh, how do you inspire your staff to buy into that story? Oh. If there does exist, like, how do you communicate, like, everyone, like, how do you, as roasters, as a team, communicate to your staff, like, is that part of, of what, why you're here? Like, why you're selling this? Why you're doing what you're doing? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I just, actually, this is now a new part of my job. It's like staff education, and I really like that part of my job because I can do things like I have um, a fact of the week that I write on masking tape on the, the tins that the, the bar staff uses. Um, so, like, you can't avoid it. It's a very mom thing to do. <laughs> this is in your face, and you will look at it a million times a day, and you will remember it. Um, but I also like I get to pull people aside as they're like running in late for their shift and be like, "Hey, have you heard of you know this guy with these beans?" <laughs> but yeah, and then sit at the bar and be like, "Hey, this is the story, and this is why we care about it, and we do care about it, and you need to talk about this as well." And most of the, all of the Joe Bean staff is really on board with that. Like it makes it way more meaningful. For everybody. Yeah, and I think even if it's not part of my job technically to share that information, whenever like the rest of like other staff members are, are cupping along with us, if that ever you know when that happens, yeah, yeah. or even just brewing the coffee, and if there's a little piece of knowledge or a little in interesting like inspiring story or something about a specific farm in Colombia or Brazil or wherever, um, to share that is something special that I think most of the people that work at Peaks. Um, would be crazy to not be interested in. So yeah, to share the information is definitely, definitely a good time. Yeah, I think that. Oh, sorry. <laughs> just mostly, just like kind of, we all love to know the story behind the coffee. Um, and it's a lot of just kind of like, almost casual conversations. Not really, uh, not really like sitting people down and saying like, this is what the coffee is. This is where it comes from. This is the cooperative. It's kind of just like sitting across the bar from each other, tasting it, and just talking about the, the origin and people who. Produce it. Some of the best times I've had sitting at the public bar were <laughs> with our um, 
I sit there for hours on that sometimes, talking with our head barista, Clinton, about you know, where the coffee comes from, how it made it to our place on the west side of Buffalo. And it's really sometimes an inspiring story. Well, I think uh, that should be about it for time, unless someone else has a burning question that they <laughs> really need to be there. I have a general question. For, I don't know if it's a roaster question or shop question, but for shops that differentiate between like espresso bean or espresso blend and like, you know, pour over coffee, how do you, at what point do you decide that this is going to be espresso and this is going to be non-espresso or, because I know Joe Bean we use, you know, on both, they're the same beans. For, for us too. Yeah, oh, a lot okay. of trial and error, just see how a bean fits into the espresso versus uh, filter, but we usually do both and kind of just see what happens. <laughs> every, every once in a while, a bright coffee will be a great espresso shot, but mm -hmm. will be terrible under milk. Mm -hmm. So if you've got that single origin on, it's actually why I asked today. No, totally, totally. I said, is that great under milk? Because mm -hmm. um, you've got an Ethiopian yeah. on. Um, and sometimes that lemon notes just don't, don't sit well or sometimes they sit really great in a cap but the minute you hit latte it's for some reason it's a disaster right so i think it's it's up to a barista and a staff to understand each of those coffees and what it's just like a regular Hard brew, like how it how it's going to turn out right mm -hmm. so when somebody says hey i want that ethiopian you could say it's going to be a shot or it's going to be a cap and that's the only way we serve that one because we want it to taste we want it to taste fantastic but in general we don't roast any different for for espresso cool well, well, that's it. the house espresso right so I we can make you any we can make you any drink right so if you're going to like head towards like the single origin espresso that's on like 
I want to Hopefully be really you're good. going to take a recommendation of what's what's great or what's not. Yeah. Yeah. Not that kind of wall. <laughs> I mean, more like a screen. Costa Rica and Kenya are going to pay for this wall. <laughs> so do you guys have a big warehouse room where there's also like months worth of coffee? No, that's it. No, that's it. That's it. Okay. Yeah. How's that work out for you? It actually makes me feel good. You get yeah, no, we don't need as many shelves as we thought. I mean, we have <laughs> Our coffee stockpile isn't that far off, okay. so. Yeah. He might have just as many American stuff. I think we do. We do have a large the normal coffee right now, though. Gotta walk it up right? the ramp, gotta walk it up the ramp, gotta walk it up. Varieties and. I would say there, so that's pretty good. Most of the time, um, sometimes when I get a new driver, like that parking lot, so they drop it in the street. It's not so good. Definitely. Um, Especially when it's not like it's my mask. And you got just some green coffee. I'm going to be peeing coffee later. I guess so much. Especially for that chip. Rapidly heading to my So I'm Andrew, and I also brought two coffees for everyone to try tonight. I know it's getting a little late for <laughs> two more coffees, but little cups. So <laughs> I brought a, at Gimme, we roast on two different Probat drum roasters. We have a five kilo and a 45 kilo roaster. So I wanted to bring a coffee that's typically roasted on each machine. So you could maybe try and explain the differences and what we do on each different piece of equipment. Um, so I brought a Kenyan coffee that is from the Nairi region. Um, it's from the Kiamena factory, and I think that's mostly SL28 and SL34s in there, um, similar to your coffee. Yeah, way cool. And uh, I also brought a Peruvian coffee from the Chirinos Cooperative, which is a cooperative that we've worked with for a couple of seasons now, and our director of coffee has gone down there and she's very tight with the farmers and the producers and everyone who runs that co-op. So, so that is a coffee that gets roasted on our 45 kilo machine, um, which we do most of our bulk of our uh, roasting on. Um, so that, that roaster, it's, to give you an idea, it's uh, a bit larger than that. So that, that's 25 kilo. Ours is a 45 kilo, so we get like 65 pounds out of the time, which is uh, quite a bit compared to the other roaster, which puts out about eight pounds. Um, so we roasted the Kenya on the smaller machine. Um, and the smaller roaster is usually for our higher end um, micro lots and coffees that we would only use for single origin, uh, whereas the larger machine, we do a lot more of the blends and um, components for our espresso go into there and we do have some single origins that are high volume that we, we put through there as well um, but the the ones that we want to showcase the most 
not to say we don't want to showcase all our copies and all the best things about them, but um, there's a lot of certain things that we find we can manipulate better with the smaller roaster than we can with the larger machine, just because of the way the heat transfer goes. So the Kenyan is an interesting one, whereas, um, and it was interesting hearing your approach to how you roasted that coffee as well, because or coffee from Kenya, um, because we use a slightly different approach, but it's cool to see that like you can get good results from many different ways. It's not just one path, but uh, we like to pick our charge temperature, and usually when we get a new coffee, we will um, look up the moisture and density of that bean once we get it in, and we'll usually start on a profile that we've already created for a previous coffee that might have a similar moisture and density content. Um, thanks to Cropster and all the data logging software, we're able to save all that information and look it up so we can continue to use it. But we'll usually use like a similar, like a profile that we used for a coffee that had similar characteristics and then we'll cup that and go from there. And we kind of are constantly doing QCs with all, QC with all of our uh, coffees in-house and they're often changing and always trying to find the best thing about that coffee. Um, very rarely do we decide upon like the profile and leave it for the whole life of that coffee. Like as the coffee changes, we will often update the profile just to bring out more flavors as the, the greens age and also other factors like weather and season changes affect that too. Um, what more can I say? The Kenyan coffee that we're going to pass around is a very fruit forward coffee, a lot of tropical flavors in there, um, mango, papaya, uh, but it's also a lot of red fruit, like a hard red candy, uh, red currant, uh, it has a nice creamy um, mouthfeel to it as well. Whereas the Peruvian coffee has more low notes, a lot more dark chocolates, brown butter, toasted almond, powdered cocoa, um, which is more versatile for blending purposes because that coffee is used in a couple of our blends, which works out well for that and as well as a single origin. Although we do have a couple of different profiles that we'll use for that same bean depending on what's happening with it. Um, anyone have any questions so far? I feel like we've answered a lot of questions that roaster related already today. When you guys get a coffee and you find that there's something about it that you're not liking, how do you go about changing that and fixing it, especially when like you keep trying different things and trying and trying and you're like, at some point you're like, what am I doing? Like how, what's your process for that? It is a lot of trial and error, it is, but it's also deciding what we don't like about that coffee and trying to pinpoint like, you know, where that's coming from in the roast and isolating that and changing that part of the roast and, and you know, trying it again and again. <laughs> Hopefully we can smooth it out. I don't ever recall a case except for a coffee that had a lot of defects that we had an issue with that we ever didn't figure out. What the Are there different points in the curve where like you might go to first and be like, well, I don't like this, so let me try and change this part. Absolutely, like, yeah. What's, what's your go-to method like as a like troubleshooting? Yeah, so we've had um, situations where we liked something about, like say like Kenyan coffee has a really nice acidity. We tried a lot of, um, of roasts at one point a while, like some months ago, where uh, we had diminished some of the acidity and we wanted to figure out a way to bring that back. So 
you know, we looked out, looked at the curve, and you know, we used our knowledge of what part of the roast will affect the acidity of the coffee, and we'll try and make adjustments just to that part of the roast. You know, maybe it'll be like shortening the duration post first crack, or maybe it'll be speeding up something in the very beginning or slowing down something. Um, I mean, depending on what your issue was. This is the uh, Kenya we're starting. Thank you. Yes. Um, a lot of, um, well, not a lot of, but some of the roasteries I've been to go for like a certain, for lack of a better term, flavor area. Like some places go for a very fruit forward, um, some go for more of a floral coffee. Do you guys have more of a specific area you're looking for? Like, does Gimme have a general flavor profile? Yes. Um, we like to showcase a lot of different coffees, but <clears throat> I'd say I can't speak for the whole company, but I feel like a lot of our coffees are um, more of the um, mild Central and South American coffees that are um, very approachable coffee coffees, but still have like a little special something, like a little like fruit up front or a nicer acidity than you might find in another coffee from that region. Um, we don't usually do anything too wild and crazy. But we do source coffees from all over the place. Yes? Uh, I have two questions. One would be for like the weight that you put in. Do you ever change that to the coffee? Um, like is there a standard thing you always do or do you change it depending on like which source or like the source of energy and like how does that affect it? Um, so right now we are in a position where we are using the same batch weight for each machine that we've found to be the best just in general for those machines. Um, there's been occasions where we've adjusted that slightly and we've done tests on certain coffees where we'd say, well, hey, maybe you know, this isn't working as like a nine and a half pound batch, but let's try it as a seven and a half. More often than not, when we stray from what we found to work the best, um, it doesn't go super well. <laughs> but um, we like to try still to see what, if we can find anything that we like about that. But um, it's best for us as the roasters to have like a set um, batch weight for each coffee, for and each machine. Second way, this is I guess for all you guys. Um, I'm in IT. You guys have used Cropmaster as a program. Cropster. Cropster. Is there anything? Is number one I guess is there any other programs? And is there anything that you can see in that program that would like be awesome? Like something that like is challenging or something that you like a lot more? Um, I'm not super familiar with other um, data logging software, though I know there are others out there, like Artisan and... Yeah, there are others. <laughs> um, I must say, it's something like Cropster is really amazing about, like their customer service is great and they're really receptive to people in the industry, like talking to them about what they might want to see. Um, I don't personally have anything off the top of my head that I'd want to see different. I don't know about anyone else up here. Yeah, man, I would, I would love the ability to um, design a profile before roasting the beans, um, you know, point by point. We, yeah, it'd be great. <coughs> like map out every... Yes. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. I mean, right now I'm using scotch tape and a bit of string. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so. It's like the war room. Yeah. <laughs> so with, um, sorry, 
roasters that uh, use cropsters? Cropster. Is it a kind of a fully automated thing, or how much input do you have in terms of where the temperature rises and falls? Um, I have full control of all the, the heat adjustments that go on. It just reads all the different temperatures and time, um, and it has really great features, like she had mentioned, the rate of rise, um, which is a, a nice um, visual to have, you know, to see at what rate your temperature is increasing or decreasing throughout your roast. That is super handy, and that has allowed us, since we started using Crapster, it's allowed us to manipulate the roasts like no other. Like we used to, you know, have a notebook and write where we, you know, at what time we were at what temperature, and that would be our roast curve, um, which I think it's way more consistent to have the software and be able to just have it all on the computer, and then it opens up a lot more doors for like possibilities of like adjusting different parts of the. So roast. it doesn't like uh, program the roaster you still have no. to program it, but it just gives you information about it. I am the program. <laughs> 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 I've been programmed to adjust the. <laughs> so, like, for experience coffee people, we kind of have a general idea of what you're talking about. So for the people in the room that might not have any idea of what you're talking about, when you say like rate of rise or like enzymatic or um, caramelization, can you explain for those people like the different points and roasting process and what those do on like what their effect is on the coffee? Uh, yeah. As best you can. <laughs> I know it's a loaded question because there's like so many different answers, but like the best way that you could explain it for people that might not know. I had a whiteboard. Oh my goodness. Oh, yes. asked for the whiteboard. Um, maybe while Janine's getting that out, uh, so three of the companies up here right now have blend, blend coffees. Um, do you all blend coffees post-roast? Because I've, I've recently heard that there's Certain importers that recommend like roasting together. I've mentioned that so far in all of our blending, we have blended them post roast. Kind of these, which might be better than whiteboard. I'm just interested to see if there's anyone. We've, we've yeah, so we've, we've tried it both ways. Yeah, we have we have a well, we played around with kind of an accidental blend, um, <laughs> which, which meant I showed up in the roastery and needed some coffee and there was like little bits of stuff left and I threw, I threw that in a grinder and it came out of the grinder and I was like, this smells effing amazing. And then the coffee was great. And so we played around with how many handfuls I threw in and figured out a ratio, <laughs> pretty much. And we tried it post and and um, and pre-roast, and yeah, and it was it was a nuanced difference, but post-roast was definitely better. But we it's just we not optimized it. to every we coffee when you do it pre-roast. Yeah. I think it's just better to make every coffee the best that it possibly can be and then put them together. Yeah. I think it's by some kind of magic, all of your density and bean size and stuff was about the same, you could make that kind of work. But without that, it's, it's difficult. And it, was, and it was discernible to try it both ways. For, 
for us, it's never a dark road. Right. Like, yeah. For for us, it would it would be um, medium to light. I mean, and, and sometimes if you're looking if you're looking for citrusy notes, I mean, you're gonna you're gonna stick that into into something light. Um, with most with most blends, if you're selling them to restaurants, you want something chocolatey, and that will pair well with dessert. So you not necessarily you're looking for dark fruit, not necessarily bright fruit typically in a in a blend that you're gonna use for a restaurant. I have a question, so you guys distribute to a lot of different shops. Mm -hmm. Um kind of applies to everybody, but you get I imagine you get a lot of feedback from the shops on what this coffee is doing. You get different feedback from different places. Does that come back into how you're roasting? And does that change over time or do you go with your views I'm not sure if you get feedback, and I guess it's feedback from the baristas at your shops versus yeah. other places you sell to. Well, as I'm the national wholesale director for Gimme, so I'm the main point of contact for the people that aren't actually Gimme Coffee serving our coffee. Um, I do get a fair amount of feedback. Um, oftentimes, it's when some, they want something changed, um, and oftentimes we are able to sort of mitigate what type of coffee they'll be getting in general, as opposed to changing, overhauling the entire roast. Um, we can find the coffee that fits better for their specific needs, as opposed to, here guys, change the curve and like, fix it. Um, it it's, it's, it's more just about finding what works specifically within our current lineup of coffees to really align with what the mission statement of the wholesale customer is. So like you mentioned, uh, Restaurants are looking for something nutty, chocolatey that goes well with their creme brulee after after their dinner, as opposed to bakery, which is looking for something that's just give me a cup of coffee. Just, just, I just want coffee. Most fancy bullshit. And so we try to deliver a specialty coffee that sort of yields those characteristics of down home, cozy, sort of warming uh, qualities that they might look for. So it's more about sort of aiming their language. Um, so typically we stick with what we know as far as our coffee lineup and then adjust accordingly based off of what the individual client preferences are. Cool. I guess on a smaller scale for everybody, I mean, you get feedback from the baristas, I imagine, on tasting notes and cuppings or whatever. Does that come into how you end up roasting the final product or how it changes over time? Um. I take the feedback from our baristas very seriously because they have a lot of time in contact with the beans. Um, you know, I, I'll cup at the beginning of a shift, so I have, you know, what, 11 minutes maybe with a bean a day, where they're with them all day. And if they smell or taste something different, it could be a sign that the bean is aging and I need to adjust. Um, but I also take it with a grain of salt because when I come in to work, I, I always brush my teeth with an unflavored toothpaste. I, I make sure I use no fragrances in any of my self-care products. Like I make sure that I am coming in as a blank slate and then I try my coffee. Whereas in, like the baristas have to live their lives, right? They gotta grab a meal before they get on, on bar. So like it could, their experience of the bean could be tainted by an external factor. So if I come in and Adam's like, hey, this thing is vegetal, I'm gonna cup it first. Um, and hopefully we can cup it together if he's not on bar and then we'll talk about what he experiences it. And if I don't experience that, I'm gonna keep my curve the way it is. But like, I'm always trying not to be defensive about the beans, like they're, they're not my beans. This is, these are our beans, right? And if they're bad, then we need to change them. So like, sometimes yes and sometimes no. 
We actually had a, a Papua New Guinea that we had on bar for a while, took it off for like, I don't know, a month or so, and then re-roasted it, and it was, uh, got feedback that it was just very different with the same profile, um, and it's uh, just kind of aged into, it definitely got better, but kind of aged into itself, so we uh, just kind of adjust accordingly a little bit, um, wasn't huge, but yeah, it was definitely just mostly feedback from the baristas. Um, is there any specific, so we were talking earlier about moisture content, right? We don't have moisture meter. Timmy's obviously a company that's a little more established, so you've got, I imagine, access to additional toys and tools. Is there anything like a moisture meter that you're regularly incorporating into QC and profiling? Or? Um, yeah, well, we mostly take the moisture and density into consideration when we begin with a coffee to figure out where we want to s start from. Sure. We do measure those things monthly just to make sure that our storage is be is stable. We don't sure. want to have a coffee drying out too much, sure. um, or like you know, like if the coffee was a different density all of a sudden, that would throw <laughs> up a red flag for something's wrong with your storage. Um, but um, typically it's just for like a jump off spot, just to sure. say like, well, we've had success with coffees that were like similar to that in the past. You know, we use this profile, let's start it off on that and then from the, we'll go from there. So you gotta start somewhere. Do you do anything with like uh, Agtron or screen sizes or anything like that? Or? No, we don't. Um, mostly just the moisture and density. We also have um, a uh, color meter that we began to incorporate in our QC, but realized it was not working out for what we had hoped it would, so we have put that on a shelf and it hasn't moved in a little while. Yeah. <laughs> I think we might sell it on eBay. <laughs> so we have three roasters here that use roasting like Crofter and one that doesn't. Um, my question is, what advantages do you guys see to either uh, aspect, whether using Crofter or using all your senses? I think not using Cropster gives us a little... Someday almost, we will use. Yeah, but it's, it's definitely, it's down that the line. Is, that's the right yeah. answer. So, yeah. yeah, it's just, right now we don't, but we will eventually. So, it's definitely so, better. So to kind of like piggyback on Sam's question, uh, since three of you use Cropster, have, have three of you never used Cropster when roasting? We don't use Cropster for sample roasting. Yeah. That's all just, you know, sight, sound, and smell that we use to determine, like, where we want the coffee to be. But we're also not trying to pick the perfect profile when we're sample roasting. It's just uh, a very basic, like, roast that we want to see what potential the coffee might have. There also um, is still an element, like, in, in our roasting of if it, if it looks, smells, sounds, whatever, uh, really good, and the curve might instinctually be telling you something else, there's still like there's still an element of um, thinking that it's going to taste good, or like observing it, and maybe a little bit of contradiction to the curve that we'll still then try. We don't just rely on it looking perfectly every single time. Um, so it's not that Cropster really removes all of the uh, the thoughts for us. It, there's still an element of um, like instinct to it, which we try to keep it in there anyway. But Cropster adds that like consistency. Um, or the possibility for consistency that just sight, smell, and sound might not provide you. Um, so, all of you are roasters. 
and a lot of us here are baristas or just consumers. Um, I, it's so sciencey, like looking at those charts and everything, and like hearing all you talk about this, and it's like I would not know anything about this. So what is one like? There's kind of a disconnect between roaster and barista, and especially consumer because of that. So what's something that's like you want to communicate? Like something you like? Is, does it come through in the tasting notes, or is like there's something else that you think that consumers and baristas should know about? Coffee that I may not get to know otherwise. Like, is it the flavor that you're really trying to like, or do you think like the story of the bean is really valuable and like where that came from? Like, I want them to be more of this like connection between roaster and consumer. And then Brisa, I feel like learning all this stuff today is like, wow, I knew I did this so much like on this thought. And um, yeah, so like, do you think? Um, because so at the shop I work at, you know, like places will send about the farm or maybe not. Um, I think, I guess my question is like, uh, is it more valuable to communicate about the coffee itself or about like where it came from for you or, um, I don't know. I, what, what's the take on yeah, yeah. Like what's the like it? <laughs> <laughs> we have different specialties and we need to right like I can't deal with people all day and you can and that is awesome <laughs> for me um, so like I don't need you guys to, I don't I don't need the baristas to know exactly how I'm roasting the beans you know because like that's my gig and I, I don't need to know everything about like what the regulars prefer right that's your gig um, but I think where we come to get together is at the cupping table you know I, I want you to know that the way this bean tastes is intentional you know, um, and not most of the time a happy accident. Uh, and I want you to know like the story, absolutely, and like what makes this bean so special. I want you to have ammo, maybe not ammo. I want you to have like <laughs> information that you can connect with our customers about and um, bring them into like why specialty coffee is important. And I, th I think back of house is really important to like adding that value. What do you guys think? I think that sums it up great, like coming together at a cupping table, sharing you know, flavor notes, and just talking about the coffee. I mean, that will lead to more discussion, for sure, but that is great. I was going to say the same thing about the fact that the flavor, or the, the profile of the coffee and the way that it is, is intentional. It's not just something that happened, but it's it's an intentional thing. Yes. Sorry. No. Uh, to think about that, I think it would be really cool about like the battle of the roads. Like you explained about the Kenya, like the challenge in that is actually really interesting. Just like the farm, about the farm, mm -hmm. about the roads. Yeah, it would be great. Just not enough people. I mean, there's, I mean, there's, yeah. That, I mean, that was like Janine last week was in this mode, like championship. Yeah, she presented. You, you also have to understand that sometimes you don't want to tell the folks. <laughs> like, uh, imagine all your customers and you saying, this bean is super old. <laughs> like, no one is going to touch that, right? Even afterwards saying it was hand-sorted. Somebody imagining, like, fingers going into every one or, of them. Like, why didn't I think, you hand-sort like, the other beans? Exactly, right? right? So there, there are things that are awesome backstories. And then there are things that you do to like, our head barista sometimes will taste something in there 
and he'll write his flavor notes and he'll be like, this is what I would put on the bag. And I would say, nobody would ever buy that. <laughs> right? So how about these, which sound awesome and are, are flavors in it, right? But, you know, he thinks lemongrass is awesome, but does everybody want lemongrass in their coffee? No, how about calling that lime? And then, ta-da, everybody wants that in their coffee, right? So you've gotta, you've gotta pick your language correct, and while it's intentional, like everybody's palate's a little different too, and you don't, you've gotta, you do have to sell this stuff, so sometimes you've gotta be careful. <laughs> Instagram, which had pictures of latte art because I was just starting to get into coffee. Uh, they were opening up a, a new shop in Peaks Coffee Company and they're like, come on down and, and check it out. And so I would watch him roast and I'm like, this is cool. And then months later, however long it was, he's just like, yeah, you can, yeah, work for us. Roasting's cool. Roast. <laughs> okay, roasting's cool. He's like, okay. You're the head roaster. So, the head roaster as of like two months ago. Right. But it just it just happened, and I went from Starbucks to Peaks Barista to Roaster, and it wasn't not by a choice of of my like it wasn't not my preference, but it wasn't like I went and looked looked for it. Well, also you're just like. Well, it wasn't at, it wasn't searched out by me. I was found, and it's. He was, he was so intent. He was so intent on watching me that, like, when I was roasting, I'd be standing there next to the control panel, and he would be like breathing down. Like personal space. No, not I I was a barista through college, because um, I was in Seattle, and that's what everybody does. <laughs> and then I came here and I got lucky and I got a job here at Jovine and I walked past this guy roasting on our Ambex like every day on the way to the bar and it just looked so cool. Um, and then 
And then he came to me one day at the bar and was like, hey, you, you know, you might be good at this. And then he showed me how. And it was just like magic. Because um, it's all it's, uh, mechanical, which I love, you know, and scientific, which I also love. And like there's art involved. So yeah, it's all my favorite things. Yeah, I also started at Starbucks. Um, <laughs> just kind of the, like got into the sense that there's something more behind this coffee. And uh, eventually ended up in a few different shops before just meeting James and bugging him to let me in the roastery. That's well, you, you started roasting. <laughs> well, yeah, I did buy a home roaster as well and kind of just like did it on my own for a little bit. Nice. But yeah. that was kind of the, the basis for just get a feel for what happens when you throw a bean in heat. So, and then bug James to get in the roastery. <laughs> I was also a barista for a while at Gimme, and uh, I didn't love the pace. It was really busy, which is great for some people, but it was too much for me. And I kind of just wanted to, but I wanted to still be in coffee. I love coffee. So there was a position in production, which sounded kind of my, my speed, listening to music, bagging beans all day. So <laughs> I did that for a bit, and then they needed to. Uh, a fill-in roaster one day because somebody was going to be gone, like a, going on vacation. So I got trained to use our old, uh, we used to have a couple of air roasters that give me before we got the drum roasters. I got trained on there and then the position eventually opened up in the roasting department and I was kind of a shoo-in for that. So that was my story. But, uh, <laughs> I really enjoy working behind the scenes and um, it's a nice balance of alone time and people time I get. like with the people I work with in the building and you know the small amount of visitors we get but also like being very focused during like that 12 minutes at a time <laughs> during the roast where I'm not talking to anybody at all like just focused um, so that's that's how I got into it and since then I just like got my interest in roasting coffee's grown incredibly like I've done a lot of home roasting and uh, I've uh, helped out a lot of other friends see, uh, start their own little home roasting things and uh, yeah it's fun Pays the bills. <laughs> what kind of valuable tip do you guys have for new roasters that are looking to get into roasting? Cup, cup, cup. Yeah. Other, other than coffee, <laughs> like. Stress, stress. <laughs> don't be worried about about not having like if you're just roasting at home. Don't be worried about messing it up. Just roast it and see what it tastes like, and roast it and see what it tastes like. I would even say intentionally mess it up. Yeah. That's what I'm about to do. Is like do all the things that I think I shouldn't do, um, and then see what they taste like specifically. It's <laughs> yeah. a good way to do it. Yeah. yeah. You just kind of familiarize yourself with like what can go wrong and know every variable kind of, but it's really just yeah trial and error like everything else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's all the set. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Summed it up. <laughs> Doing them simultaneously, so it wasn't like one before. The, uh, well, I did actually the um, the large scale before I did the small scale at home. I I got trained as a production roaster, and then was like, well, I got this popcorn popper. Let's try that at home. And then I, I borrowed like a, a sample roaster from work and took that home too, and uh, just so I could practice at home on my own time and uh, bring friends by. And everyone in the neighborhood thought it was really neat that I was out in my yard like <laughs> doing something weird. <laughs> 
Yeah. yeah. Oh, don't do that. <laughs> I tried to do it always outside because I had one burst into flames once and it was yeah. a big mess. And those fumes are carcinogenic. Like, really, honestly, don't do that. Yeah, I recommend outdoors, always on the porch. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's um, going from a home roaster to a production roaster isn't really that much different from going like production roaster to production roaster. Everyone's going to kind of have different variables and kind of things to play with. Um, but yeah, it's mo I had a be more too, just with the the light instead. Um, and it's uh, yeah, they're they're all very different, so it's kind of hard to say. Yeah. I'd say if you have a way to track temperature now. Yeah, you there is tracking. I, I do that and I log the temperature at each minute and then first craft and stuff like that. Nice. Yeah, that's probably a great way to, to start. Um, there's a home, there's like an iPhone app you can get called Burstmaster, which can integrate with like a Bluetooth device. It's like a $10 app that'll, that'll allow you to track everything. Because they're soaring. between like roasting and extraction you find like as a barista I find one of my biggest struggles is um, I want to know more behind like what was happening before I started to extract like do you guys find with your baristas that there's any disconnect between the two of you that you'd like to to narrow or is it more you guys do your thing they do their thing and when both sides are working properly, it all just flows. Well, we're a, a, a smaller scale. I mean, there's only a, a few baristas and a couple roasters. Um, and oftentimes we get to, to cup and talk all together. Um, and <coughs> you mean a disconnect in like, like extraction and roasting, like uh, if, if a cup is not brewing properly or? I don't know, I just, I don't know how to phrase it, but. Have we had issues here, like airing them out? Like if we've worked through a couple things where like uh, something's not pulling right on the espresso machine and we, we talked about that. No, I think it's just, I, mean, I think I'm like, just talking knowledge. No, it's not, no. <laughs> Is there a human resource department here? <laughs> Knowledge bases, I think, is all I'm, like, mm. my question didn't come out right at all. Sorry. No, that's okay. Well, <laughs> uh, if there is a disconnect, and I would hope that somebody, barista-wise, would, if they have, like, an interest to, to know more about what's happening, if they ask, I'd be happy to walk through exactly what's happening. And oftentimes, like I said, we're a smaller scale operation that's possible for them to sometimes stand right next to the roaster and just watch, and I can talk and say, this is what's happening, this is what's happening. Um, 
and if they, you know if they ask again, I don't know what people's questions are before they ask, but if they sure. want to know something and they say, how does this translate to the espresso machine or to my V60 or whatever, we would happily talk through that. Yeah, I'd say that we're like, I mean, I wouldn't say we are a very small operation too. Um, and so there's kind of just a constant dialogue between, especially Clint and our head barista will be in the roastery all the time, um, kind of be talking about um, what coffee is optimized for what brewing device and things like that. So it's just kind of an open dialogue and then he'll kind of communicate that to the rest of the staff as well. So Yeah, we, we just recently, probably four months ago, kind of just changed the way that we do shifts. So the head barista is in the roastery all day on Wednesday, every Wednesday. So um, we use that day to um, taste new coffees. We use that day to revisit all of our our current offerings and figure out whether there needs to be some adjustments to it we talk about launches for new coffees and that allows um, it allows a more active or interactive um, piece with then the staff right so uh, his job then is to go back to the shop and make sure that everybody understands everything that's happened right we're not we're not big enough where everybody can be in the roastery all the time and we currently don't have the luxury that you guys have which with the main shop and the roastery attached ours are not um, like two miles apart they're two miles <laughs> apart but it's two very long miles when you're talking yeah. about the transfer of knowledge right so the only way to do that is to do it through experience right so you guys have a great advantage to walk through the staff room and walk back here. And if you're not doing it all the time, um, you're, you're probably not getting the most out of what the experience is out there, even if it's just a few minutes. How do you guys deal with that disconnect, like between baristas and roasters? Like, um, you know, sometimes you have like your more enthusiastic more coffee-centered, like, I want to make this my career type of barista, and then you have your baristas that are like, I'm just trying to get through college, and like, you know, like, how, how do you deal with that, and how do you keep everybody engaged? <clears throat> a lot of logs. A lot of baristas are required to fill out logs during shifts, and a lead barista is responsible for inputting all that knowledge into threads that the, everyone else in the company is checking up on and reading. And our education department and roasting department are also really close together, so there's a lot of tight communication going on all the time, um, which is really helpful to have like a, one person who moves between everywhere and talks. Like our, our um, head trainer, regional trainer, he he'll go to all the stores and see what's going on if there's ever issues or things that baristas need to talk about, and then he'll communicate to us really well. And they'll so also you guys have walks. Oh yes. Can we talk? <laughs> 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 tell you a little bit I know about it. Um, sure. Because it's been a while since I was a barista filling up logs. No, that's that's, <laughs> cool. that's a really interesting thing that I All like. of our baristas also attend um, rollout labs. So anytime there's a new coffee coming through the pipeline or anything to that effect, everyone comes to the lab and does a quick synopsis of the coffee. We cup it, we do tasting notes, that sort of thing, and then any feedback good or bad is imparted right back to the training department and then subsequently to the roasters. Mm -hmm. So when something new is coming out, it could be all the baristas are getting bright cherry out of this. Well, that's a good thing. Or maybe we want to adjust the target accordingly. But the, using the training department as sort of a segue to the, to the roasting department 
allows for that disconnect to exist, but the channels of communication to remain open. I like that. We're um, small enough and friendly enough that I just show up half an hour early to my shift and sit at the bar and then have people make me treats. That's <laughs> 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 good. So talk about yeah. it. Yeah. So speaking of that, like what kind of being just a consumer, do you like to actually just go to other shops or shops that you roast for and be a consumer? Like would you ever kind of like want to be anonymous to see how your coffee is represented elsewhere outside of, of <laughs> your building like you know what I mean just to see how it's presented how it's being communicated about um, like does that add value to your job do you feel better about that if it's represented well or do you come back and be like man I wish how can I make this better on the other side I know that's kind of a loaded question from your <laughs> I can start it from my end. I love doing that. <laughs> Baseball cap and sunglasses. <laughs> <laughs> not, not even. Not well, I mean, you have, you have like someone like Andrew who works with gaming and has, there's like six shops, and I'm sure not many, everyone knows who he is that works for the company. Um, unfortunately, everyone else is pretty small, so you guys are kind of not behind the veil. Uh, so, I mean, as, as you know, guests at other shops, you get to do I'm like trying real hard to live in the in the zone of that's not my business like my business ends kind of at that door like I do the very best I can if it cups well then it's into the hands of other people who do the very best they can and like I kind of have to trust in that yeah and we're, we're I mean we don't have the uh the, the reach actual like throughout the state wise or the number of shops that serve our coffee for me to really be able to be anonymous if I were to go to, to one. But also if I, if I went to another shop with the intent of seeing how, how good or bad it's being represented or shots being pulled or whatever, I would probably feel that the same way as like, it's not necessarily my job to communicate to these people this is how this coffee should be represented or like you're doing it wrong or something. If it's anybody's job, that's probably our, um, either an owner or a wholesale director's kind of field to deal with. Um, so I think I would probably feel the same way. Would you give feedback though? Is that oh, absolutely. To the proper people who then would go and, right. and communicate down the line. But Right. We have... Yeah, other people like other people other than myself who would be the person that would go and check that out if I went to a shop and I and honestly and tried something that I thought was off, but maybe a <clears throat> brewing issue rather than a roasting issue. I would bring it up to our trainer in the education department or our salesman who represents that client, and they'll go talk to them or go, they'll go try it out and see what's going on and troubleshoot with that customer. Rather than telling the barista that they're doing it wrong to the right, yeah. As a roaster, I don't really feel like often that it's my position to tell them how to brew differently or better and nor do I have like the knowledge of like how to recommend doing it in the best possible way because it's not necessarily my field 
Yeah. But we definitely have somebody who does that. <laughs> <laughs> and we talk all the time. <laughs> Usually if, say, Eli goes to a shop and he's like, oh, this wasn't prepared the way we like it to be prepared, he'll usually notify himself or like our wholesale director and we'll talk amongst ourselves, like what wasn't great, what was good, like the positives and the negatives. And then if like, the issue continues, usually we'll go sit down and talk with like the shop. And the barista is going to be like, hey, what's going on? Can we help you in any way possible? Here's the feedback we've gotten. What do you guys think? Cool. Okay. Super cool. Well, that feels like a yeah, pretty good spot to wrap things up. Uh, thank you, everyone, for coming out. And thank you